Well, what a joy to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day, to spend this time singing truth, immersing ourselves in what we rejoice is indeed the truth from God and His Word. Um, I love these lyrics and especially that last song, thinking about the grip of the Lord upon us. Where would we be without that? So thank you for uh, allowing me to come. I'm glad to spend this morning with you and starting our Bible conference days together. And I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 1. I'm going to read the psalm into your hearing. And the psalmist speaks here in this first chapter, taking us into the beginning of this grand and glorious book. And we'll spend our minutes together this morning considering these verses, longing for the Lord to use His Word in the way He so faithfully does, to stir and encourage, to exhort and direct to renew. Amen. I hear those pages turning. At Psalm 1, here we go. The Word of God says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. Amen. The Christian life is a transplanted life. From darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, you have been transplanted in the good news of the gospel if you are confessing Christ as Savior and Lord. And I want to talk to you about this life, the good life, blessed life, soul-fulfilling life. It's the kind of life that is rooted and nourished and fruitful and the kind of life that's produced by knowing God and by walking according to the Word of God. We're going to listen to the psalmist guide us today, encourage us, warn us, all the sorts of things we need from the Word of God. There are Christians in history that have loved the book of Psalms so much that they would say it's their favorite book of the Bible. If you were to Google what are the top books that people read on a popular level, those polls will again and again indicate Psalms at the top of the list. It's turned to because it's a comfort to the hearts of the readers in all kinds of circumstances. People have read it countless times committing to memory verses and things that have stirred them in a way that at the very time they needed a word from the psalmist, the psalmist has pointed them to God. I think there's good reason why the psalms strike people this way. In the words of John Calvin from the 1600s, he says that the book of the psalms is an anatomy of the soul. And what he means, he explains, is that there's nothing we experience no emotion of which we are conscious that's not represented in the Psalms as in a mirror. 
So everything that we go through and the ups and downs of our emotions and affections, there's a song for that in this book. The word psalm means song. A book of songs. Well, you would normally call that a hymnal. That's one way to think of the book of Psalms, actually, is that the book of Psalms in the Bible is an inspired hymn book to nourish the saints. So many songs, 150 hymns, and I think that's because some things don't just need to be said, they need to be sung. We know this. We go to birthday parties, weddings, championship games. There is singing, and that's because there are times to express emotions, thankful, sorrowful, celebratory, lamenting, confused, sentimental, We know songs outside the Bible that touch on all of those things. If you're looking for music to help you sleep, there's that. Music to help you study, to help you exercise. Oh, there's songs for all occasions. That's what we love about the book of Psalms because we are naturally inclined toward music. Music and singing are gifts of God. We've enjoyed those gifts this morning, gathering together on the Lord's Day to corporately worship together and to sing The people of God proclaim from our hearts what we are convinced of in the word of God, and not because we always feel like it, but because we need truth to orient our emotions, and we need to take our heart before the word and say, Lord, help my wavering heart. Singing helps us. Music and singing are gifts, and the early church loved the book of Psalms. The early church treasured this book because they knew that the book of Psalms reveals God. We learn about God's nature and his character from Psalms. We learn about the dilemma of mankind and what we were made for and the effects of sin. We learn about the history of God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament. We see wickedness and righteousness and promises and covenant language. Oh, the Psalms teach us, and that's why music is so powerful. It has a catechizing, educating effect. Music has a discipling role to play in the people of God, and so God gives 150 hymns to help us understand, to help us grow and to study. The New Testament authors knew the book of Psalms was important. It's the book in the Old Testament they quote the most. And you might say, what's a big book? Well, you know, some of the prophets are also quite big. And by word count, Jeremiah is actually longer than the book of Psalms, even though the chapter divisions differ. And so the book of Psalms for the early church and for the New Testament writers has such a paramount uh, emphasis in their minds. I was not planning to say it that way, and uh, no pun intended, but you know, there you go. It was crucial in their minds. And in Psalm 1, we come to the beginning of this glorious book and oriented toward the songs that are coming afterward through this gateway. To be fully transparent, Psalm 1 is not the only psalm that introduces the book. You should think of Psalms 1 and 2 as a pillars, gateway into the book as a whole. Psalm 1 is this morning together when we gather again tonight at the end of the Lord's Day, we'll be in Psalm 2. Psalms 1 and 2 comprise the entry point into this beloved book, the book of Psalms. It is about the blessed man. 
This psalm easily divides into two parts. Verses one to three are about the way of the righteous. Verses four through six are about the way of the wicked. Sounds very proverbial in that way. If you go into the book of Proverbs, you're reading about wisdom and folly. You're reading about righteousness and wickedness. The Psalms is gonna help us be wise by pointing out what's true for us to think about and live in light of. Verse one begins with an emphasis on the blessed man, and we're told what he doesn't do. And then verse two, we're told what he does do. The way of the righteous is viewed through what this blessed man's activity looks like. The very first word of this psalm, the first word of the whole book of Psalms, is the word blessed. It's an amazing first word, isn't it? Because it's rooted in Genesis 1. God makes his world and he blesses his creation that it might be all that he has designed it to be. And in the Old Testament, that's what blessing aims at. And it's not just about favorable circumstances, but a life, a life that is growing up in wholeness and favor with God and man, loving God, loving neighbor, bearing fruit in our words and works to bring glory to God. Such a person is blessed and is living a blessed life. Blessed, this language is the opening word of the whole 150 Psalm hymn book. Verse three is gonna tell us this blessed man is such because he's like a flourishing tree. In verses five and six, while the wicked perish and they don't stand before God, the blessed man does. To be blessed then is to have your life flourishing with a kind of joy and peace, holiness and wholeness that you were made for, that Genesis one sets a trajectory for. Psalm one is good news then because we live in a Genesis three world, not just a Genesis one world. We live in a world that is marked by suffering and brokenness, and every one of us come into this room today affected by the broken world on the inside. And Psalm 1 is good news because it tells you that the power and grace of God is not limited by the brokenness of the world, but indeed there is blessedness for all who will come to God. Amen. When we read this description in verse 3 about this blessed man, We should think to ourselves, I want that to be true of my life. I want this. One of the drawing effects of the Psalms is to woo our hearts with images and metaphors that we might desire what is good. Because sin makes us stupid. And we don't desire always what is good. We think of things that are dishonoring to God and we think maybe I'll do that. And we long for things that not only are bad for our own souls, but that can deeply corrupt and compromise the relationships God has allotted in our lives. We need wisdom on how to follow God-honoring desire. And this psalm is going to lay out for us the life of the blessed man that we might long for that. That our desires would be stirred like an aroma coming forth with power and beauty We're gonna discover in Psalm 1 that this is a path to blessing and the alternative is a path to judgment. The psalmist is blessed because of what he doesn't do. Verse one says he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Those three lines are really important and three groups are mentioned, right? The wicked, sinners, scoffers. 
These are all groups that are in rebellion against Lord, the, the Lord. The word sinners there, you might think, well, you know, the Bible says we are all sinners. This word sinners here is being used specifically for those sinners in rebellion against God. These three groups all hang together. Those who are the wicked, those who are sinners, those who are scoffers. What is the counsel of the wicked that the blessed man doesn't listen to? If you wanted some input on your life and you went up to so-and-so and you said, I-, I have this going on, here's my circumstance, I'm going to lay out the situation, would you give me some counsel? What, they're looking, what you're looking for is some direction, some instruction that's going to help point you, that's going to give you some guidance. We learn here in Psalm 1-1, hey, the wicked, they love to weigh in on what they think you should be doing. The wicked have words for you. The wicked would say, hey, here's what I think you should be living for. Here's how I think you should conduct your life. The wicked have words to instruct and guide. We call that influence and discipleship. And the wicked would love to disciple you. And the wicked here have counsel that the blessed man does not walk according to. The worldly counsel of those who do not know God and do not fear God, those words do not instruct this blessed man. He does not walk according to their counsel. If they say go here, that is not what guides him. If they say live this way, he does not take his cues from them. Blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked. Oh, the many griefs and despairs that have come into the lives of image bearers because of who they are listening to counsel of the wicked that they have taken in, internalized, and are now walking according to. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. We have to be clear here what this means and doesn't mean. You might think standing in the way of sinners is a good thing. Sinners are going this way, you get in their way. Don't go that way. This is not blocking sinners. This is not what this means. It doesn't mean to obstruct them in their path. We would think that that would be a good thing to try to intervene and interpose in foolishness. Stand in the way of sinners is making their path your path. A way is a metaphor for a path of living. The way you're conducting yourself. Sinners have a way. These who are rebelling against God have a path. And blessed is the man whose path isn't their path. He doesn't conform his priorities and life to those who are against the Lord. Blessed is the man who says, their way is not the way I'm going. The way of sinners is not his way. Blessed is the man, in this third line, who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, What is a scoffer? We've seen this group of the wicked, the group of the sinners. These are rebels against God. This language of of scoffing, this is not just someone who has words to share. They're a particular kind of words. To scoff is to ridicule, to mock, to jeer at. A scoffer is someone who observes and mocks spiritual things. To the scoffer, spiritual things are met with a sigh and an eye roll and a give me a break with that. Blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Oh, there are seats at their table and they would love for you to come and sit among the scoffers. They say, come, scoff with us, mock with us, eye roll with us. Isn't this all ridiculous? 
But this blessed man, he's blessed because he would rather have a seat at the table of the Lord with the people of God. To take a seat with scoffers is to join their fellowship. This doesn't mean relating to unbelievers. This is talking about their priorities and their way of speech and their pattern of living becoming that of this man. Maybe you've noticed a progression in these verbs. Walking, standing, sitting. I think this movement is intentional for us to notice. Walking according to the counsel of the wicked will lead to taking their path and standing in the way they stand. And taking the path that they take means their table will be what draws you and before long you will be seated where they sit. Walking, standing, sitting. So they start out listening to wicked words and by the time all is said and done, they're in the seats speaking the wicked words. And that's because of what they're listening to from the start. Our lives are impacted by the counsel and influence of others. We know this to be true. This isn't surprising information to us. We know that this is true. We have all been shaped by what we have taken in. And Psalm 1, therefore, needs to shatter some delusions because we are influenced by the path and lives of others with whom we connect most deeply. Somebody might think, oh yeah, my closest friends can be those who do not fear the Lord. They will not influence me. No, no, I'll be just fine. In fact, I will be the influencer in that relationship. Or somebody might think, listen, I can date someone who doesn't love Christ. What could go wrong? Everything will be fine. And before you know it, the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seed of scoffers is what has drawn you. Blessed is the man who doesn't go that way. Choose friends whose future you want to share. And when you see the alternative path, not the path of life, but the path of foolishness and unrighteousness, there is a future there, and it is one of judgment. How can we avoid sitting with the scoffers? It starts with what we're listening to. Blessed is the man who doesn't start walking that way, because then he won't take their path or their seat How can we avoid sitting with the scoffers? You will be directed by what you listen to, and that's why verse two matters so much for our very souls. Eternal significance tied into how we perceive the words of God. This man listens to and receives what he delights in. In verse two, we've seen what he doesn't do. What does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Oh yes, he, he takes in counsel. There are words he receives to guide him in a path and to a table where there are chairs for him to sit, and it's all driven by the word of God, driven by the blessed word of God. He is blessed because of the effect of the word of God upon his life. The law of God here is a shorthand way of referring to what God's made known in his word. Instruction, wisdom. This man's life is directed by the truth and goodness and beauty of the word of God because he understands what kind of book this is. It is not like any other book. You can be bored with a lot of books that won't have any significance to your life. This is not that kind of book. The word delight 
is about an internal disposition towards something. You and I don't delight in everything. We could make a long list of what we don't delight in. In fact, what we probably despise. Things in life that drive you crazy that you would never find joy and delight in. This man's delight is expressed here as in the law of, of Yahweh. The words of Scripture and his internal disposition toward them, it's such that he has joy in the word of God. It brings him peace and wisdom. He can taste and see that the Lord is good because he reads and believes what God has made known. In fact, the scriptures are so important to this man who is blessed, they have this occupying role in his mind. He meditates on them day and night. That's pretty occupying. That doesn't mean it's some kind of extraneous peripheral notion, not some sort of optional thing to the way he conceives his life. He meditates on the word of God day and night. It's a verb about contemplation. Meditates can have some wrong associations with it, connected to Eastern mysticism and ideas about emptying the mind. That's not what this means here. This man is not emptying his mind, he's filling his mind. This man is filling his mind with the truth of God's word, the wisdom of righteousness and life. To meditate in the way this psalm talks about meditation is to think on it, to talk over it, to think out loud and with others about it, to meditate and reflect on the words of God. For this person, then, Scripture is not just something he does on Sundays it doesn't say he meditates on the law of the Lord one week, one day of the week. Day and night this man meditates. It has a preoccupying role in his mind. It drives what he does. It determines his counsel, his way, and ultimately his seat. For this person, scripture is good and true. He's mentally engaged. Delight and meditation go together. I want to tell you a secret that's not a secret. The secret to delight in your Bible reading is meditation. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and the one who delights in God's word does not view the word of God in some sort of shallow or distracted or cursory way. He thinks about the word of God, and we must say that out loud, hasty readings of scripture do not produce delight in the reader. Cursory, distracted readings of Scripture do not produce delight in the reader. And we have a countercultural position here then because distraction is everywhere. Everywhere. Companies spend billions of dollars of staggering proportions to keep you fixated and distracted. I mean, how many dozens at this point of streaming services exist and smart devices that woo and spontaneously draw attention. This way of life this man is involved in requires an unhurried connection with the word of God that is not disrupted by the busyness of life. We might resist meditation because we might say, well, I don't really have time for it. But that's not really true if we were to start listing all that we make time for. I mean, the truth of it, friends, is that we make time for what we think is important. So if someone says, I don't really have time to read and meditate on the scriptures, I think what they might be saying is, it's just not important enough to me. Then you just need to read Psalm 1 and say, well, given what this man is doing, I just don't see the scriptures the way this man does. And at that point, isn't it a matter of faith? 
maybe you don't really believe what God says about his word. And so delighting in the Bible seems crazy. An immediate takeaway here from Psalm 1 is that we must be people who are serious about the Bible. If what the Bible says about itself is true, and if the view and authority that Christ has by the word of God that we see in the Gospels is to be believed, and it is, then we must be people who see the word of God in an ever-increasing way of importance, in such a way that it has a preoccupying role, not just in us individually, but corporately for the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. This book is not like any other book. This book reveals the living God who has made himself known to you. He's made you in his image, and in our foolishness, we delight in many things that we ought not. This man is blessed because his delight is rightly ordered in the word of God. And we know as Bible readers, Many times, delight doesn't precede reading the scriptures. We read the scriptures in search of and in hope for delight. We wake up in the morning and we're groggy or we've had a long day and we're opening the word of God and and joy and delight is not what we're feeling coming to the book. And so we open the scriptures and we humble ourselves before God and we say, God, I'm so weak. I'm so prone to wander. My soul is so dry and parched. Oh God, you are faithful. And you are true, and everything you've made known I can trust. So God, as I read your word, would you renew my soul? And would you believe that the psalmists also talk this way? You read through the psalms over and over again. They realize they come to God, longing for him to work and renew them by his word. This is the first month of a new year. It's got that new car smell, doesn't it? It's 2023. Don't let 2023 be a year where you regress in your devotion to the word of God. Not as individuals, not as a church. Let this be a year of pressing more intensely into the things of Christ, cultivating discipline and consistency. You should consider some questions this morning. And I wonder, perhaps, if you've ever read through the whole Bible. Some people make goals to do it in one year. Maybe you've tried that before and done it. Four chapters a day. Now, of course, it's January 22nd, so there's a little bit behind, but you know, you get the gist. You can do the whole Bible in a year in four chapters a day. You could, you could write out certain verses to memorize and to chew on throughout the day at work or at this traffic light. Not while you're driving, to be clear, but at the traffic light. <laughs> to pull out a sheet of paper or a note card and say, what is the verse I'm thinking on to orient my life in truth? I want to meditate on the word of God because this is wisdom from God. Maybe you should pick one of the four Gospels and read, say, the Gospel of Mark through all month. And the next month, what if you read Mark a second time? And then the next month, read Mark again and just focused in on one of the Gospels during the year, immersing yourselves in the teachings and ways of Christ. How can that not go well for us? Or read the book of Proverbs all the way through. 31 chapters, read a chapter a day. We need to be people who are serious about the Bible. What sort of view of the Bible do we have as individuals and as churches, as leaders and as students, as parents and as children? What sort of view of the Bible do we have? I wonder if our view of the Bible is what God's view of his word is. Here's something that's clear to me about this man in verse two. He is not passive about his Bible. Day and night he meditates on it. That requires intentionality. That requires that he's able to say no to certain things in order to say yes to what matters most. 
He's not passive. In fact, in a world full of suffocating falsehoods, this man knows the word of God is oxygen. And in a world and in a culture surrounded with poisoned wells and parched souls, this man knows the word of God is living water. He lingers over the word. He's not hurried. He pauses and he thinks over what he reads and he tastes and he sees and he loves God and he grows. You know what Charles Spurgeon said in the 1800s? He says, the more you read the Bible, the more you meditate upon it, the more you will be astonished by it. He who is but a casual reader of the Bible does not know, Spurgeon says, does not know the height, depth, length, and breadth of the mighty meanings contained in its pages. Spurgeon is right. Why doesn't this man in verse one walk according to the wicked's words? Because of where his delight is. Why why doesn't he ever imitate their way and path, the way of the sinners? Because of where his delight is. Why doesn't he sit in the seat of scoffers? It's not like they don't have chairs for him. They will welcome him to join in ridicule and mockery and eye-rolling about the things of God. He has his delight in the law of God. That's why he doesn't take the seat. The practice in verse 2 is what leads to the reality of verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Here's that picture for your imagination, if there ever was one, a fruitful, life-giving and life-renewing tree. Planted by streams of water. Yes, the Christian life is a transplanted life. Planted by streams of living water by the good news of the gospel that now makes known to us the living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the savior and friend of sinners. There's no one like Jesus. There's nothing like his word. We need delight in his word because the reality that will follow in verse three is that we have a transplanted life planted by streams of water that yield fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither. Its leaf doesn't wither. Well, that's a weird tree. I come from Louisville, Kentucky. And every fall, well, we have real four, four very real seasons during the year. It's snowing right now at home, uh, my wife told me uh, earlier this morning. And uh, leading into the fall and winter, everything around is, is withering. Because that's what you expect for the season to bring. This is not a normal tree then in verse 3, is it? The metaphor is of a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, so as you would expect, but then its leaf doesn't wither. There's something about how other things may change around that something within this tree and what it's rooted in creates a stability, a rootedness. That's what you have with this man. He's planted by streams of water, the nourishment of the word of God. This is spiritual water and truth, and his life is planted there. How firm a foundation we sing as believers. The word of God has laid the foundation and even the rootedness that we need for our Christian living. The power here is not in the tree, but in where the tree is planted. The streams of living water. Some of this language in verses one to three have reminded interpreters of the book of Joshua. And maybe this verse has come to your mind already this morning where the Lord is going to exhort Joshua in chapter 1, verse 8, as they prepare for the wonderful conquest of the land and promises to be received and kept and land to be inherited as God is faithful. In Joshua 1, 8, he says, the book of the law 
shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall what, church? Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Well, this means then that the effect on the word of God was not something that was just for Joshua. You can't read Joshua 1.8 and say, well, that was just for him though, right? We just read Psalm 1. It's the same language. It's the same language and the same promise because it's the same word from the same God. And the promise to Joshua and the promise to the reader of Psalm 1 is that the hand of the Lord is with us by his word. His plans for us are for our ultimate good. He will bless us and cause our lives to flourish in his presence in joy and in peace. And no matter the circumstances, there is a stability and a rootedness and a fruitfulness for the life of the one who knows God. Because this book is not like any other book. God has made himself known in his word. Do you believe that? And if your view of the Bible is what the Bible's testimony of itself is, then how is it shaping and influencing in your, your life? If you say, oh, I care about the scriptures, how would you demonstrate that you do? We should also remember not just the words of Joshua, but go all the way back to Genesis. And ge well, really page one of Genesis. Uh, there's this creation account, a day and night rhythm. Day and night God works. And what does he work by day and night? He works by his word. He speaks and he brings to pass creation. He fills after he makes. He grants life and flourishing and fruitfulness by his word day and night, day and night. All the way rooted then in Genesis chapter one, we see how this language we read now in Psalm one is in keeping with the whole character of faithfulness of God in his word. Right after Genesis one, there's a garden. Streams of living water are there. There's a tree of life. There are image bearers who are made to walk with God by these streams of water. In fact, God takes the man and puts him in Eden. We might say he plants him by streams of water. That he would flourish there and know God there and obey and submit to his word. And not try to take wisdom for himself and to live on independently and morally autonomous from God. That would be the way of folly. Because it would be to take the command of God and to set it aside because he thinks he's smarter than the commands of God. Friends, we're not smarter than the Bible. We don't have a better strategy. We don't have a better message. We don't have something that's more true. We don't have something that's more compelling. You want to be relevant? Nothing is more relevant than what lasts eternally. It is everlastingly relevant. It is the most impactful, life-changing, soul-sustaining reality in the universe from Genesis 1 forward. Oh, let us delight in this word. When we read in Psalm 1, uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 3, that this man is planted by streams of water, he's like a new Adam, isn't he? living out with his relationship with the Lord in a fallen world, a real communion with God. He's not in Eden anymore, but the echoes of Eden are there. He's walking with God. That's what we say as disciples of Jesus Christ. We use this language. We're walking with God. And what we mean is, as image bearers, we were made for that. That's what we're made for, not trivial things of this world to woo and distract and keep us off focus. We were made to walk with God according to his word. Blessed is the man who does. Blessed is the woman who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, 
Blessed is the teenager who doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. Blessed is the parent who doesn't walk and stand in the way of sinners. We need to be those whose lives are guided by the wisdom of God. Because in verses four to six, we come not only to the way of the righteous in this psalm, but to the way of the wicked. We've seen the fruitfulness of this life, influenced and shaped and undergirded and propelled by the living words of the Most High God. And in verse four, the wicked are not so. In immediate contrast, it's jarring. And not only is that opening line of verse four jarring, the metaphor is deeply disturbing. This wicked is not like a tree. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I don't know the last time you had to separate wheat from chaff. It's been a while for me too. But the way they would do this in the ancient world is they would take their harvest and they would use a winnowing fork and they would toss wheat into the air. And the husks and the remains, these, this chaff-like substance would be blown away by the wind. It was what was lacking substance. It's what in the end was to be set aside. Not kept and welcomed in with purpose and joy. The wicked are not fruitful like this tree. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff separated from the wheat at the threshing floor. What we are prepared for in this metaphor is what verse five makes more clear. We're given a picture of judgment. That's what this is. Verse four is a picture of the judgment. And what the writer of the psalm, just like other parts of the Bible, do the same thing. They want you to think about what is to come so that it will impact the way you think now. We can be so short-sighted. We can be so short-sighted in our limited lives, in our small slice of history in which we live, the Bible is wise to seek to give us a perspective that transcends the present moment. That the best way to live in the present moment and the best way to think about our lives in the path ahead is to consider the unseen, eternal truths the Word of God lays out so that it will shape the here and now. It's living now in light of then. In this future, having bearing on the present is to have this effect on the readers by telling you what will happen with the wicked. The Bible is telling you down the road what is coming. Friends, you can't see down the road. The Bible can. The Bible sees farther down the road than you do. Listen to what it says is in store. That we might be shaped and guided by this unerring, inspired truth. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked and the sinners, again, are like those of verse one, who gave counsel and have a way. So we're talking about those rebels. God saves sinners, yes. These are not people who have known God in the wicked and the sinners group. The wicked, the sinners, and these parallel lines, they don't stand in the judgment, which must mean a posture of being welcomed in and vindicated. It is true for the righteous. It's not true for the wicked. They won't stand in the judgment. They're like chaff who will be separated. Nor sinners will stand in the congregation of the righteous. The righteous have a future with the living God that they were made for. Everything that sin has brought disruption to in our lives, inwardly within us, upon our minds, and upon our bodies, we have not fully conceived the greatness of the redeeming and glorious work of God in store for his people. To be raised from the dead, 
to live in glory with our triune God, age upon age, end without end, amen? This is our future with the God who knows and loves us. We will stand in the judgment. The congregation of the righteous will dwell with their God who loves them and has come for them in his saving grace, but the wicked are like chaff. And the reason they don't stand in the judgment or these rebellious sinners in the congregation of the righteous is because of verse six. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, the word way represents a, it's a metaphor for one's life, a path. And the path of the righteous is known and cared for by God. One way to conceive of this knowing is that the Lord knows in a sense of attending to. He knows, but not in an aloof way, not in a removed way. He knows in a shepherding way, in a guiding way. He will hold me fast, we sing. He knows the way of the righteous. He walks with us. We are his people and he is our God, but the way of the wicked, their path, their path is one that will perish. This in verse four, this chaff, is interpreted rightly here in verse six as the future judgment of the wicked. And the good news for sinners is that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to the perishing so that we could trust him, know him, love him, follow him into everlasting glory. You can trust him and he is faithful. His word is true and is worthy of our meditation day and night worthy of guiding all that we do in our lives, our families, our neighboring relationships, our marriages, our churches, that the word of God be loved and treasured. Because for those who do not value the word of God, the Old Testament speaks about them. God speaks and they don't listen. The word of God comes to bear with commands and exhortations to follow and prohibitions to keep, and they don't care because they think they're smarter than God. And they think their way will be better, and they think their strategies will be more effective. And so they go their own way. It's like the fall in the Garden of Eden all over again in the hearts of people. Sinners over and over again rejecting the path of life and once again pursuing folly headlong. And in the Old Testament, those are the people who don't know God. But the people who know God, they know the God who has revealed himself in his word. What they know about God, they've learned because they have meditated and been renewed by the wisdom of Scripture. And they are so convinced that the Word of God is what its testimony bears itself out to be, that they know there's counsel of the wicked, a way of sinners, and a seat among the mockers, and that's the last place they want to find themselves because the living God has made himself known. We know that we fall short here. As sinners... We have not seen the scriptures as we ought to have. Lord, help us. We have not flourished and been fruitful in the ways that we know would most honor God. The Lord is so gracious and patient, isn't he? We are so thankful for his long suffering and great mercy. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What a great line. When we sing songs like that and lyrics that speak to the truth of the gospel, we are recognizing that good news for sinners is that God has loved the perishing and sent his son for us. If anything, we could recognize that among those who lived, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate blessed man of Psalm 1. 
You know who meditates day and night on the word of God and loves it as it ought to be loved and walked according to it in every way? Jesus did. And the good news of the gospel is that he was among us and never fell short. He walked among us to save and deliver the perishing by his grace to keep the law that he loved so much. He walked the way of the righteous. This blessed man who in everything that he did by his words and actions bore the best of fruit. And even at his death, followed on the third day by resurrection, this was a tree that would not wither. The Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross and empty tomb gives us the best of words. And as the blessed man, he is a true and greater David and psalmist for us, directing us by his word. The Sermon on the Mount is an interesting place to begin closing this morning because in Matthew 7, we see an ending in the Sermon on the Mount dealing with judgment upon the wicked. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount begins with this word, blessed Interesting way to begin, interesting way to end when we consider in the Sermon on the Mount what we've noticed in Psalm 1. Jesus Christ has offered a way of blessing in life to sinners. It's not outside of him, though. It's not outside of him. He doesn't say, if you'll come to me, I know the directions, and it's this way and that way, and here are the things and the people to, he isn't pointing away from himself, he comes in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about a way of blessing, a way of life seeking the kingdom that will dominate and orient one's entire life until our last breath, and that this is really good news, because on our own, we don't do the right kind of seeking. And by his grace and for his glory and by his precious Holy Spirit, he guides us in life. And yet at the end, he says, there will be those who hear my words and they won't do them. And that person, they're not wise because they heard my words, they're wise because they hear and respond accordingly. The builder of the house or the liver of a life that hears the words of God and says, yeah, but I'm gonna do this over here. That person is a fool. Jesus says, the foolish man hears my words and builds his life on something else, builds her life on some other foundation. It's unstable. The imagery is not of a tree planted by streams of water. In Matthew 7, the imagery is of a coming storm, a judgment. And the house built upon sand that cannot stand but instead falls. The meaning is the same as chaff driven away by the wind. Jesus says the wise man, the blessed man. You know what that person does? That person hears the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and says, those will be the words I trust. That way will be the way I walk. Friends, you should turn from the path of folly to the way of righteousness. You should reject the counsel of the wicked which is coming at us in this culture from every corner. You should reject the counsel of the wicked and you should delight in wisdom and in truth. You will delight in something and you will heed someone's counsel. It's inescapable. May it be the word of God. May you submit to the words of life and blessing. Way, truth, and life. Well, you know what we need to do this then to be those in line with Psalm 1. We need Christ. We need the one who is the source of all blessing in life. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, 
and I am the life. Oh, how we need Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that as your word has been proclaimed, as we have sought to exalt Christ and point us to him by your word, would you cause in our hearts faith and hope to rise, joy in him to be full and overflowing. Bring delight where there hasn't been. Align our lives with your word if there has been disobedience. Bring conviction and repentance and the life-giving way of righteousness to our lives. Oh, Father, for this is the way that is good. This is the way that is blessed and fruitful. May we believe your word. May we submit to its teachings. May we hear the words of Christ and follow him with our whole heart. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.